Hi, and welcome to Top in Tech, a global council podcast. I'm Colin Darcy. I'm the regular host of this podcast, and I'm a senior practice director at Global Council. So today is the latest in our series of in-depth interviews with the leading thought leaders and thinkers on tech policy and tech regulation in the UK, in Europe, the US, and globally. And today we're going to focus on the subject of digital advertising, which is an issue we haven't really gone into much depth in on previous podcasts. So looking forward to this episode. And I'm lucky today to be joined by Guy Parker, who is the CEO of the Advertising Standards Authority in the UK. Guy's been in post now for over a decade, overseeing the UK's regulatory regime at a time when there was a major shift in the advertising world to go online. During this spell, Guy also chaired the European Advertising Standards Alliance for several years. So Guy, thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, today. As you would expect, we want to talk about issues related to policy and regulation in the advertising sector where you are uh, uniquely qualified uh, to comment. And there's three basic areas I'd like to cover today. The first is the state of play in policy and regulation in advertising and how changes in technology have played into those regulatory frameworks over recent years and the policy responses that we're seeing today. The second one, then just to touch on the market situation, which we're all seeing in the newspapers day after day around the state of the advertising industry. So more the commercial dynamics, but also how those then cross into regulatory questions and considerations. And the third is then to look ahead to emerging regulatory issues. So issues that may not necessarily be on your plate as a top priority today, but say in five, 10 years time, perhaps your successor in this role, um, unless you're planning to stay for the whole of the next decade, I shouldn't rule that out, of course. But if they were going to look at their own priorities, then the issues we're talking about today, so perhaps virtual reality or artificial intelligence, that may be much higher up their plate than perhaps they are as of 2022, 2023. So if you don't mind, if we can go just straight into that regulatory question. And my observation would be someone who's been following British, European, and global tech policy and advertising policy over the past few years, is that you can actually paint quite a gloomy picture about the regulation of advertising um, and the controversies attached to that. So we've had big issues in recent years around fraudulent ads. It's been covered uh, intensively uh, in the media. Lots of issues related to children, adverts targeted at children that perhaps shouldn't be otherwise, how influencers in particular, whether they're labeling their ads in an appropriate way or not. And then also uh, you know, another batch of issues related to mental health and how issues like body image, are influencing younger people and how they think about themselves and society more broadly. There's lots of others I could have listed, but they're just a little bit of a portion of that. And then in the UK, at least, we've seen provisions in the online safety bill to do with fraudulent ads. We have the online advertising program being considered at the moment. So when you, when you reel these all out together, it sounds a bit gloomy and it sounds like an industry with a major public policy problem. So as the foremost regulator in this space, it would be interesting to get your view as, you know, is the regulatory system in the UK fit for purpose? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I think the, the focus um, in the UK and beyond on online regulation and online um, advertising regulation is, is pretty unsurprising. We're going through a digital revolution at the moment. Um, because the shift in our attention has gone online and the advertising dollars have, have followed. Um, online advertising is now by far the dominant piece of the media mix. Um, and surprise, surprise, regulators that have got a responsibility for regulating stuff that happens online have had to shift their focus to that and I've had to really prioritize that and that that, that includes us um, and you know there are real concerns at the moment around fraudulent advertising we play um, a, a partial role in in helping to disrupt scam advertising online but we don't see ourselves as being the frontline regulator of fraud because it's perpetrated by organized criminal groups mostly 
um, and we're not constituted um, to to tackle those at source. We do disrupt scam ads through a scam ad alert system that we set that we set up a couple of years ago. But but our real focus is on being the frontline regulator in the UK of advertising by legitimate businesses. And you mentioned some of the kind of issues that are around at the moment, and they are undoubtedly you know, issues, things like in- inadequate or non-existent labelling of influencer advertising, um, concerns around targeting of ads um, online. Those are right at the heart of a lot of the regulation that we're delivering at the moment. We published a, a report called the 100 Children Report um, last month, we, as well as sampling around a thousand, um, I think there were twelve to seventeen-year-olds. We also had a, uh, a, 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 we also had about, I think there were ninety-seven in the end because a few of a few of the participants dropped out because we found out they were adults posing as children. But we had ninety-seven children. We um, we monitored their their activity for a week on the devices that they they used, either smartphones or tablets, mostly smartphones, to get a better handle on the sort of ads that they were exposed to. We found that, surprise, surprise, a significant chunk of them had given false ages in order to get onto social media apps because almost all social media platforms have got a minimum 13 um, uh, age requirement. Um, Those who had given false ages were more likely to see age-inappropriate ads, so things like ads for alcohol, and gambling, um, so it showed the the challenge um, for for advertisers who want to try and make sure that they're targeting their their ads appropriately. It's not always easy for them if people are lying about their ages. Um, it shows the challenge that we've been responding to in recent years in trying to make sure that the ads are appropriately targeted online. But it also challenged the argument by some that kids are being bombarded with inappropriate ads online. Because although there is more of that around than we would like to see, the uh, the children in our sump sample saw on average, I think it was 3.7 ads a week that were inappropriate for them because they were for alcohol or gambling. And that is 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 only slightly ahead of the prevalence of exposure to um, child exposure to alcohol and gambling ads on TV, which is, I think, about three a week. So it's in the same ballpark, still too much of it, still difficult if you're a responsible advertiser to 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 never um, target under-18s, um, but not completely out of control, as some say. Um, but you know the government has been clear in its going back to the online advertising program. The government's been clear in its online advertising pro- program consultation that it wants to build on the ASA system. It wants to provide regulators, including uh, potentially the ASA, with the right tools and so on. Um, we think that our and and, and and this is all about platform accountability, right? It's all about making sure that the 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 big digital platforms that are that are dominant in online advertising um, at the moment are doing what they should be doing to make sure that their users are protected from bad stuff, including irresponsible um, advertising. And that's right at the heart of a lot of the work that we're doing at the moment. We launched a, uh, a new initiative, a new layer of regulation called um, Platform and Intermediary Principles in June this year, which involves, it's, we're piloting it for the first year to, to see how it works. The participating companies are all the big ones. So Google and Meta and Twitter and Snap and TikTok and Amazon ads and so on. Um, And they sign up to principles that encourage them to improve the way they promote the advertising codes to their advertisers and improve their response if we're finding it difficult to stop bad stuff appearing on their platforms, helping us on the enforcement side. And that's exactly the same as sort of system level regulation that's written into the online safety bill at the moment for other online harms. Um, Obviously, this online safety bill is still going through Parliament. We've launched our IPP programme, as we call it, uh, in June this year. The pilot will be over 
uh, in June next year. And we have ambitions to then roll it out comprehensively to all platforms and intermediaries above a, a certain threshold si size in the UK. And I just think it shows one of the strengths of the ASA system that we can act quickly, more quickly than the law. Um, a lot of what we're doing is, is complementing the law. Our big message to DCMS and government ministers at the moment is whatever you decide to do with the OAP package, make sure it strengthens rather than undermines the ASA system because we, we, we're going to continue to have a really important frontline role in regulating uh, online advertising. Our sense is that they very much hear, uh, understand and respect that message. Um, the, the package they put together is still under consideration at the moment. They consulted on three options, self-regulation, co-regulation and statutory regulation. The smart money is on a package that, that has a mix of all three of those, depending what you're talking about. My best guess, for example, is that on the sort of scam, scam stuff by criminal groups, they'll look to replicate what's in the online safety bill, but for the whole open internet. And they will look at you know, direct statutory regulation by Ofcom because that's what Ofcom is going to be doing under the online safety bill. So they'll just try and have a sort of, you know, a, 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 a consistent thing across the piece. But when it comes to some of the other harms that DCMS has consulted upon in its online advertising program, I think we should probably expect there to be a mix of co-regulation or, or, or leaving it to self-regulation, depending on what the harm is. And that doesn't hold any fears for us, so long as the detail is got right. Because within the ASA system at the moment, we have, we have parts that are co-regulatory. We co-regulate broadcast ads with Ofcom. Uh, we co-regulate video on demand and video sharing platform ads with Ofcom. So if something like that is coming down the road, we know we can make it work. So I'd like to return to that question of the regulatory underpinning uh, that the government is looking at. But just, just first, I was, I was struck by your comments there around the types of adverts that children are exposed to. And it's quite interesting you saying that it was the case that some, some adults posing as children, and then you had uh, some people potentially, or you know, maybe not in the survey, but also more broadly kids basically lying about their age and being exposed to adverts that they shouldn't otherwise be. And this isn't just a debate for advertising. We've seen this with uh, privacy with the Information Commissioner's Office age-appropriate design code. It's pretty central to the online safety bill and the safety issues that Ofcom are going to have to grapple with. And it's the sort of issue where if you speak to industry, they will tell you this is not that easy to solve. The technology isn't necessarily there. There's research showing potentially parents aren't that keen on kids having to show certain types of ID to go online, this sort of thing that they would point to. But the basic message is it's all a bit complex and hard to do. But your comments would seem to imply that age verification or age assurance is pretty critical to ensuring, at least in advertising, but I think it applies to other areas, that kids don't get exposed to harmful content, whatever that may be. I'd just like to get your view on what, what do you see as the for age verification or age assurance, whatever the term yeah, or methodology yeah. we're talking about. What, where do you see that going and how should it apply? Um, I think it will become increasingly important. Um, there's quite a big focus on age assurance in the online safety bill. So it's coming because of the online safety bill. Um, we haven't really got much of it at the moment. There are there are age assurance products, stroke services for for whatever better, better word out there at the moment. Um, but it's not it's not really prevalent or, or or endemic within technology yet. The the interesting question for us and for businesses that want to be responsible at the moment is what do you do in the absence of age assurance schemes that are prevalent within technology? And our message on that front is pretty clear. Don't just rely on self-declared ages because we know through our own research and through the research of lots of other bodies like Ofcom that kids lie about their age and they very often do so um, 
with the support of their parents or guardians. Uh, I mean, how many 11 and 12 year olds about to go to secondary school do we know that aren't on social media? You know, at that age, they all go on social media. And those social media platforms tell them they can't register unless they're 13. So many of them say they're 13. Some of the kids in our 100 Kids study said they were over 18. Um, it was a smaller number than gave false ages, but but some of them said they were over 18. So the online advertising ecosystem and the responsible advertisers that are using it think they're targeting someone who's over 18. Um, and they're not. They're potentially targeting a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old. So you can see the nature of the problem. So we say don't just rely on self-declared ages or ages that you've inferred. Um, use other tools um, and filters that are available to you, and they vary by platform, to make sure you're targeting the right audience, which you know, if you're an alcohol advertiser or a gambling operator means an, an 18 or over audience. Use other data, use other filters, use other tools, and monitor your campaigns and, and, and learn from your successes and failures. And that's complicated. Um, we, 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 at the same time as publishing our 100 Kids report, we published updated online ad targeting guidance. This is CAP guidance. It's really good. It's the most comprehensive and, I think, accurate guidance of its type in the world. And we consulted with some real experts in the digital advertising ecosystem to make sure that we were getting it right, to make sure that the advice that we were giving businesses was practical advice that, that reflected the real world that they operate in. So we're trying to help businesses to target their their advertising appropriately if if age matters, as it does in some sectors. You also mentioned just there the, the idea of targeting and how actually if you get the age wrong, companies are po- possibly targeting the wrong people. Yeah. Um, and, but it, that, funnily enough, runs against the sort of narrative we've seen. I mean, you referred to earlier around how technology has changed and we've seen advertising move online. And there's been a lot of controversy around that. But I think part of that comes down to that very specific, perhaps distaste is the right word, for personalised, for targeted advertising that you'll often see mm. either in the media or in the policy community or in politics or even just speaking uh, to your friends um, and you've pointed out there there may be flaws in it, but ultimately it's clearly where the industry has moved to. I just wanted to on that sort of that principle yeah. base just just before we move on. That, that what do you see in principle problems with targeted or personalised advertising, or is it just something about how it can be used and deployed by certain industry players? It's a very good question. It, it, it and my 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 thoughts on it kind of come from different places so speaking as a member of the public I think we have a a complicated and not particularly rational attitude towards personalized advertising and uh, towards the the use of our browsing data and other data um, to enable advertisers to target us Um, sometimes we like it if it um, tells us about something that we're that we're interested in at that point of time Often we don't like it. Sometimes we find it creepy because we're being retargeted um, with um, a, a product we bought a week ago and we're, we then feel like we're being followed around the web by ads for that same product or a product we decided we didn't want to buy. Um, so we find that a bit creepy. We don't like it. It's a pain. Um, we, we definitely like the free content that we, that we browse, that we consume, that is paid for by the premium that targeted advertising commands. Um, we don't want to lose that. And we don't really want to make, we don't want to pay for that, for that information. We don't want to pay to access websites and so on. Um, so we have this kind of, you know, we don't really like it. We don't like the idea of it. We definitely like what it buys. Um, and we don't, most of us don't really have um much skin in the game in trying to reconcile those two quite opposing things. That's someone else's problem. It's not ours. It's why the research on um, personalized advertising 
can be quite divergent because it so depends on the questions you ask people and the, the context that you that you set. Um, so that's that's it through a kind of you know typical member of the public lens. But the market is changing anyway. The, 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 the technology is going to change, and that's driven primarily by two things. First of all, more regulation under data, data and privacy law, um, more uh, aggressive regulation by data protection authorities, primarily in, in Europe, UK and the EU, but also increasingly in some states in the US, but actually mainly by market changes. Um, Apple has already stopped the use of third-party cookies. Um, that that is all. It, that is already having a significant impact on the digital advertising um, ecosystem. It's making it more difficult to programmatically target ads at people. It's making it harder to charge a premium for that type of advertising where it happens. Um, Google has said that it's going to do the same on Chrome, I think, from 2024. Chrome is the most popular browser in the world. So with you know, Apple and Safari and, and Chrome basically stopping the use of third-party cookies and, and on app, apps in the Apple App Store, um, that, that deprecation of third-party cookies, as it's called, is going to drive big changes in the way targeted advertising works online and... The online advertising ecosystem is already hellishly complicated from a technological point of view and in, innovates and changes ridiculously quickly that if anyone says they know how this is going to play out in just a year or two, then they're either delusional or they're lying. Um, so there's a lot of change at the moment, and that is driving changes in in the online advertising market in terms of the big players. So um, guess what? Apple is busy building an ad business on the back of its um, switching off of cookies. Um, the Some of the, you know, the, 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 the titans, the two titans of online advertising, Google and Meta, are going to be affected by this in different ways. Google, most of Google's money comes from search, which is less affected. Um, but a lot of um, Meta's um, ad revenue relies on the premium it charges for very effective targeting. And if that becomes less effective because of changes in the way the ecosystem can operate, then that's going to have an impact on, on Facebook. And you've got other big changes in the, in the online ad market happening at the moment. People are fond of talking about the online advertising market as, as if it's all sewn up and there's this duopoly Google and Meta, and you know they are they are so dominant that they can just buy up challengers, and that's never going to change, and it raises big competition issues and so on. And I don't want to belittle those comments and those arguments, um, but I do want to say that this is a market that is changing already. There's the changes I just talked about. There's the rise of challenger platforms like TikTok, which is growing very very fast, and and the, the one that's sort of snuck up on everyone a bit is the big increase in the power in the market of retail media. Um, so Amazon ads, Amazon, you know, we think about Amazon as being an e-commerce platform. Um, those of us that know a bit more about um, technology might might also know that they make a lot of money out of their, their web service. Um, uh, but most people don't know that last year, Amazon ads, because they, they're, they're a media company too, an ad media company too. They sell search search ads on their site and, and so on. Last year, Amazon ads made $32 billion from advertising. That's the same amount as YouTube made last year from ads. That's the same amount as the entire global newspaper industry made from advertising, Amazon ads. And you've got businesses like Walmart, biggest retailer in the world, building an ad business, they have a lot of first-party data that's not going to be affected by the deprecation of third-party cookers. A lot of first-party data. Lots of people go to their websites. Why wouldn't you start selling ad space and targeting ads to your customers who you know really well? You've got lots of data on them. You've got a, you've got a good relationship with them. Um, businesses like Tesco, Tesco's and other retailers in the UK 
are, I'm sure, exploring building up similar ad businesses. Tesco in the UK owns Dunhumby, you know, a really good tech company. So th- th- these these changes are happening now, um, and they they are going to change the nature of the online uh, on, online ad market in the coming years. Um, they they already are. So you've talked about a lot of big companies. They're sort of a bit of a bit of a picture of some rising, some falling in, in a relative sense. But there was a lot of money talked about there, and a lot of with a lot of money comes a lot of influence, a lot of power. Yeah. And it follows from a public policy perspective that where you have large companies with vested interests and a lot on the line in terms of profit and revenue, that you need a strong, robust regulatory system in order to make sure that standards are upheld and that people aren't bending the rules to serve their own purpose. And going back to, I think, your first answer, where we were talking about the future, the structural future of UK advertising regulation, it probably surprised some listeners who are perhaps less acquainted with the ins and outs of the OAP, the online advertising program debates over the last six to 12 months, to hear a regulator arguing against the inclusion of full statutory regulation. And the trend generally in tech policy is towards regulation and hard-edged regulation. And you, I suppose the question to you would be, if we need full statutory regulation in areas like data protection, in online safety, in antitrust and competition, as we look at the digital sector, I mean, why is advertising different? You know, why is there an exceptionalism for advertising that needs a different solution? I don't think there is. Um, so we don't oppose statutory regulation. Uh, I, I've talked already about the fact that a big chunk of, of our regulation derives from statute. We co-regulate broadcast ads, video on demand ads and video sharing platform ads with with Ofcom. But even in other areas of our regulation, which you might describe as being more self-regulatory, the the rules that we're administering and enforcing are very often underpinned by legislation that de- derives from statute. I mean, 75% of our regulation, roughly, is about misleadingness, trying to stop misleading ads. The rules that we are applying there derive from the consumer protection regulations. There isn't an absence of statutory regulation um we we are a, a we are a self co-regulatory system administering rules that very often reflect sometimes very closely law that derives from statute we are funded by the ad industry so we don't cost the taxpayer anything we are uh, of, uh, over the 60 years of our history, um, changed and innovated regu- regularly to keep up with the pace of change in advertising. We work very closely with statutory regulators like Ofcom, Competition and Markets Authority, the ICO, Gambling Commission, the FCA, and we anticipate continuing to work ever more closely with those statutory regulators. We see ourselves as being on the same side as them because where our work overlaps, we're trying to tackle the same problems. Um, our argument is that the ASA system, this self-co-regulatory system that knits together loads of pieces of legislation, different broader regulatory regimes, works closely with different statutory regulators that have um, interests that sometimes overlap, but often their core duties lie elsewhere. We argue that the ASA system is a really, really important um, part of the the picture. Um, it's a really important layer of protection. It benefits the public. We think it benefits responsible businesses that they they pay for us through a, mostly through an advertising levy. After all, um, it benefits statutory regulators because it frees them up to. F- to focus on other core duties that they've 
got. Um, and it you know, de- definitely benefits the taxpayer because they're not paying for it. So w- we, we argue that any changes that come, statutory or otherwise, um, make sure they strengthen the ASA system and don't undermine us. But we don't oppose them. Um, we just want them to to be the right sort of legislative changes um, that, that improve improve outcomes. Yep, that makes uh, makes a lot of sense. So, look, Guy, we've done quite a lot on that first part, which I suppose makes sense given, as you say, you are you are a regulator. So, going a little bit deeper on the policy and the structural elements of regulation makes a lot of sense, but. You already, in some of those answers, have started talking about the evolution in the advertising industry. And I'd just like to pause just for a, for a moment or two about what we're seeing in the market at the moment and get some of your reflections. Without wanting to be a total doom merchant yet again, I just want to paint another picture here. I mean, we've seen plummeting share prices for big tech advertising platforms. Some of that is partly to do with what you talked about before, about the changes that Apple have made, but it's broader than that. Um, we've seen big job losses in those companies. I think at Meta, it was 10 or so thousand people lost lost their jobs. Um, we are seeing headlines again, global ads slow down. Um, and you also see some quite interesting, subtle differences. So if you look at the, um, you will know this better than I, but if you look at the Christmas adverts in the UK this year, they seem to be a little bit less ostentatious than perhaps previous years, reflecting probably consumers' concerns around inflation and, and the cost of living. So there's all these changes happening. I suppose what I'd be interested to find out from you is, you know, is this just a cyclical thing? We have cycles in advertising uh, where there's growth and there's expansion, um, but ultimately there's a downturn. Advertising red uh, budgets are cut, but they grow again after a few years once the economy picks back up. Or is there something a little bit more fundamental going on here, in your view, um, that we should be looking out for as the advertising sector evolves over the next couple of years of potential recession and, you know, and continued inflation? Yeah, I, mean, I definitely think we, we should keep a close eye on it. I think the interesting thing about UK ad spend, uh, and this is not a gloomy prognosis, it's the opposite, is that it's become a bit decoupled from GDP. In this country, um, uh, it's predicted UK ad spend is predicted to grow by six or seven percent this year. It's a hell of a lot more than GDP. I think the the forecasts for next year are are, are obviously not so optimistic. But again, they're a bit decoupled from forecasts about GDP next year. So there are some structural changes that are happening in terms of. In terms of that, and they may be to do with—I'm no expert on this—but they may be to do with the types of new business that that are being attracted to to, to advertise um, because of the the opportunities, the new opportunities they've got to advertise and to re- reach their customers, largely driven by this fast-evolving online advertising ecosystem. Um, so I think that's quite—I think that's quite an interesting thing to acknowledge um but we know that that when recessions hit budgets get cut uh it's one of the things that businesses quite often do quite early because it's something you can actually switch off quite quite quickly quite immediately so we certainly saw that in 2020 um assuming there's a significant recession next year that will have an impact on our budgets um I think that 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 sort of stuff feels cyclical, but we've already talked a bit about structural changes in the online ad market. Um, those are gonna those are gonna continue. They're they're, they're already happening fast. That idea that we've got okay, so Google and Meta, I think, are still responsible for about forty seven percent of global ad spend. I read that yesterday. Can't remember the source, but it's still a lot. But but it feels like that's going to change quite quickly in the coming years and not because of competition regulation, because of market changes. Um, and that's definitely worth keeping an eye on. Obviously, we're keeping a very close eye on what's happening with technologies like Web3 and the metaverse, 
you and I have spoken about this before, you know I don't like that term. Um, you know, there are already big existing Web2 metaverses, virt virtual worlds like Roblox and, um, uh, and Fortnite. Um, a lot of the money, a lot of the venture capital money, a lot of the big tech company investments have gone into Web3, building Web3 um, virtual worlds or metaverses. Um, but no one's really spending any time in them yet. Um, and then there's all the sort of technological development that's going on around AR and VR and wearables and the, 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 the hopes people have for kind of wearable glasses and perhaps having augmented reality on glasses, which is, which is an idea that it's very easy for us to engage with. We can see how that could make a big different difference to our lives. And, you know, if that had mass adoption, then that would have um, big implications on on the way we live our lives, right? And, and and therefore where the money goes and where regulation would need to go and so on. So it's a really interesting area to keep a keep an eye on. But but one of the things that 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 doesn't really change, whatever technological changes you're talking about, is the principles that we apply in our regulation. We want we want people to be treated fairly by ads. We want ads to be responsible. We want them to be legal, decent, honest, and truthful. Those principles are pretty technology neutral. Um, doesn't mean it's easy applying them in a new technological environment. But the principles feel familiar. The, our, our message to, to new businesses in these areas or existing businesses that have... Um, that have changed. So, you know, retailers moving into retail media, for example, our message to them is pretty similar to the one that we've been telling them for decades. And that's um, playing a part and supporting and funding the ASA system ought to be important to you because you ought to care about trust in ads. Um, and the uh, yeah, a, a strong ASA system is an important way of maintaining public trust in ads uh, in, a, in, a, in a broader trust environment that is very challenging because as lots of research shows, trust in everything has declined in the last 10 or 15 years, probably for good reasons. So um, I think there are, certain, there, are, there are some things in terms of like principles and messages and you know, benefits around the way the ASA system operates that are less subject to change and are fairly technology neutral. Um, but of course, when you've got important um, and increasingly powerful new actors, you have to make the case um, to them. Um, when you are applying these principles around legal, decent, honest, and truthful advertising in new areas, you have to work out how to do that. And you have to find your allies and you have to educate new businesses on what they need to do to make sure that the, that the ads that they're making money for are responsible or the ads that they're publishing themselves are responsible. Um, but, but we've been doing that for our whole 60 years. So you've did it for the past 60 years. You said that the rules that you're applying are technology neutral. Can I just, and the answer to this might be quite quick, but it's interesting to understand, are your rules recession neutral? And by that, I mean, I think for the case between when Amazon invested into Deliveroo, and initially the Competition and Markets Authority said, uh, took it to a phase two investigation, the second, um, a lengthier investigation uh, into the competition implications of it, because they were concerned it meant that Amazon wouldn't launch its own delivery service to compete with Deliveroo, and thereby there would be a lessening of competition. On the phase two uh, decision, with COVID and the pandemic having happened, uh, they ended up clearing the merger because, and I've got the quote here, because it would it would potentially have failed financially, and delivery this is, would have failed financially and exited the market without the Amazon investment. Now, I know you're in a totally different part of the regulatory uh, uh, system than the CMA, and it's a very different job, but it is interesting to see how in other areas that economic circumstances can change those regulatory decisions. But so... Does this this downturn, does that change in any way the way in which you're going to act towards 
or the rules or the application of the rules to different parts of the industry? Or is it essentially business as normal, even if the industry itself is not going through a good time? It's a good question. Um, in normal recessions, it's business as usual. Um, there was an exception during the COVID recession and during and shortly after the first lockdown in 2020, when the then Chancellor of the Exchequer um, called on regulators to apply regulatory forbearance. Uh, and we, alongside a lot of other regulators, did that. So we kind of eased off the throttle a little bit, particularly when it came to the regulation of businesses in sectors that were facing a real existential threat. But normally, normally it's business as usual. I mean, recessions do affect our funding because we rely on a levy, um, um, a levy on advertising. And if ad spend falls off a cliff because of a recession, because you know, businesses cut their ad budgets, then that impacts us, which is why it's important for us and our funders that we have healthy reserves to tide us over when the times get a little bit tougher. But but no, gener generally speaking, um, a business saying, um, you know, you should you should not take action against us for running dodgy advertising or inappropriately targeting our advertising because we're finding it a bit tough at the moment because of the recession doesn't really wash with us. So I'd now like to move on, Guy, We've just to conclude, because we, we, mm. we, we, we've done a lot around where the market has developed with regards to regulation and also what we're seeing in the current commercial dynamics. So we've sort of done the past, the present, but I'd like to look a bit to the future. And you started that with one of your previous answers. And if you don't mind, I want to focus again on that dreaded term, the metaverse. Um, when you were talking about personalized ads, mm. it made me think I was looking at Christmas presents uh, for relatives last night and trying to look for one for my aunt. And I can never, never, ever think of what to get her. So I was on Amazon and I was looking for Christmas hampers and I couldn't find a good one. And then I went onto a newspaper website later and then suddenly Christmas hampers started appearing everywhere. And uh, it just reminded me of how you can occasionally just still even now, decades into the internet and to cookies and, um, and to the advertising industry going online, you can still be a bit surprised uh, about these, the way in which this information is presented to you. And it does make you think that when we're, Perhaps this is more relevant to virtual reality, though probably applicable to augmented reality as well. That if we think about wearing a headset, biometric data being processed at scale, and actually the idea that companies can process more inferred data about things you may not even linger on for a particularly long period of time. You may not even say anything. You may not even virtually touch a button to say you like something or you want to hear more or listen longer. You might just glance at something, but in the way that you have done that, you have registered more interest in that thing than you have in something else. And that data could potentially be used then to infer ad preferences for advertising. So that experience that I just talked about, looking at one thing on one website and then going on to be advertised at another is quite straightforward. Whereas this might be, I'm looking at something and next thing I know I'm being advertised a load of stuff uh, that I hadn't even realized potentially that I was interested in. Do you see that as a big problem that we need to be looking at now? I mean, to what extent does that concern you? And do you think we should be developing rules now to prevent these sorts of questions and potential harms emerging? Or is it a case that we need to see where the technology goes first and where the money and the commercial dynamics go first before we start trying to intervene and to preempt such questions? I definitely think we should be thinking about it now in terms of writing new law or updating existing law. I think it's too early for that. I mean, look, there are large chunks of existing data protection and privacy law that have been on the books for years that aren't yet being enforced. We should probably concentrate on that um, before we start writing new law for technologies that either don't exist yet or certainly are miles away from mass adoption. 
But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be thinking about this. And I mean, a lot of yeah, the idea of the idea of um, our biometric data being used in all sorts of ways, including to target advertising, um, is quite a minority report. That Tom Cruise film from years ago. Um, a, a lot of processing of that sort of data without explicit consent, without our explicit consent, would clearly be illegal under current law. Um, but administering and enforcing current law has not been easy for data protection authorities across Europe. Um, so there are some kind of today's problems that we should be dealing with as a society, um, as well as keeping a close eye out for possible future uses of the sort that you um, talk about. I mean, you can get you can get even more you can you can get even more um, gloom laden um, and hypothesise scenarios where because of the harvesting of our biometric data, businesses know more about ourselves than we do. Um, and it's not, you know, it's really not a, a science fiction type thought. It's actually quite, quite plausible. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a gulf between hypothesizing these scenarios on the basis of technology that we have here today and, you know, mass use, mass adoption, and it mattering to us in our everyday lives. The two are not the same thing. One does not in inevitably lead to the, to the other. So we have got time to think this through. But you know, regulation is definitely going to have to change if and when these much more immersive technologies take hold um, and get mass adoption. Um, because regulation always has to do that when you get an, another big stage of a, of a tech cycle. Um, this is not the only kind of where we're going type stuff that we need to be thinking about. Um, I know your focus has been on technology, but you know, climate change is, is, a, is a really big priority for us as a regulator now. And that's going to become a much, much bigger, an even bigger priority in future years. We published a ruling in October against HSBC Bank um, we banned an ad campaign of theirs uh, for focusing only on their greener investments. It was a landmark ruling. Um, we effectively took issue with their ad campaign on on the basis that it was misleading by omission. There's nothing new about that principle. It's been in our code for years and years and years. The CMA, in its green claims guidance, which it published in late 2021, has got a whole section talking about this, this potential problem of misleading by omission, not telling people stuff that they might not know and therefore they get a misleading impression of what you're doing. Um, as was the first ruling of this sort, we think worldwide. Um, a trade journal in the capital markets area ran an article the day it was published saying that it will change markets. We, we we thought well maybe that's it's nice but maybe maybe that's going a bit too far. But yesterday HSBC announced that they were stopping their investment in new oil and gas field. Now that's not because of our ruling, or it's not just because of our ruling, because there've been green activists and shareholder activists that have been campaigning for this for a while. Um, but it shows the importance of you know green claims and greenwashing, uh, and. The, the even more interesting thing that we're thinking about now and is is gonna is gonna become a, a a bigger piece of the kind of conversation very shortly, I think, is this broader issue of advertising's contribution to promoting unsustainable consumption. Now that's a really big and important issue. You know, roughly half of the of the, the the stuff that we've got to do to meet our very challenging carbon reduction targets in the UK relies on wide-scale consumer behaviour change. So what's advertising's role to promoting unsustainable norms and ideals? What could, what could be its role promoting sustainable norms and ideas and ideals? 
Advertising is good at that. It's good at norm, norm creation. Um, how do we make sure that the norms that, that advertising is creating help us achieve those carbon reduction targets rather than hinder us? I mean, these are really interesting questions and really difficult because we then, of course, ask ourselves the question, okay, what, what role for the UK ad regulator in that? Are we going to be banning stuff? What should we be banning? How do we think about this? What steps do we take um, to contribute in a positive way towards this? And, and the other sort of coming down the road issue, I think, that we're going to be hearing more about, talking more about, and we should all be thinking more about is dark pans, online, cho online choice architecture, and how online choice architecture can, can, can basically exploit our cognitive biases and, and lead us to make bad decisions. Um, yeah, drip, drip pricing is a is a classic example. You know, when you see an initial price, say for a, you know to go to the theatre or go to a gig, um, you think, oh, that's a good deal. And then as you go through the buying process, they add fees and charges, and you end up paying much more. And what's interesting about consumer um, consumer behaviour research in this area is drip pricing works. In, in, in terms of making us make worse choices for ourselves. It works even when we know that. Even if we're actively aware of that, it still works. So online cho choice architecture of all different sorts, you know, subscription traps and so on, um, they're quite a big deal. And regulators, including us, are beginning to really focus on dealing with irresponsible use of online choice architecture. So that's a, that's another area where I'd say watch this space because we're doing some quite interesting stuff on that. Well, thank you, Guy. I think there's probably a couple more podcasts we could do <laughs> on some of those issues you've, you've thrown out at the end, but that's really, really fascinating to see the broader perspective that you're going to be taking not only on emerging technology, but those emerging uh, policy areas as well. And I'd just like to thank you for, for joining the, the podcast today. It's been a great discussion and I at least, and I'm sure other listeners, have um, really been enriched with our understanding of, of your perspective, but also understanding the sector and the regulatory approach much more broadly. So, so thank you for, for joining us. And um, as always, um, to those listeners there, uh, thank you for joining us. If you, your business or your investment are exposed to the advertising trends that we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Uh, you can find uh, details for the Global Council Tech, Media and Telecoms team on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for joining us and we'll be back again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Great, brilliant. Thank you. So